Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. It is Freedom Weekend. This is a weekend where we celebrate our freedoms, where we acknowledge our freedoms. Our country is built around freedom. And uh, this passage that I chose today, I actually didn't choose because it's Memorial Day weekend. Um, That is just in uh, God's sovereignty. But here we are dealing with this issue of freedom. And so the challenge of freedom is this. What do we do when our freedoms compete against one another? Tolerance has become the great Western virtue. And tolerance is the culture's answer for competing freedoms. You know what? Don't tell anyone how they are to live. Don't make assessments or judgments of anyone else's life. And in return, no one can do that to you. So we can all have freedom together if we just tolerate one another's freedoms. That is our culture's answer to competing freedoms. Yet, that can get really messy really quickly. There's lots of illustrations of that. I think we're, we're feeling those tensions even as our country begins reopening certain parts not other parts, the order of which it opens, these competing freedoms are battling. But we don't just see it there. I was reading an article uh, last week or so, and it was a Dear Abby type article. And so I'll try to keep this as uh, GPG as possible here. So uh, It wasn't actually Dear Abby, but it was a type of Dear Abby article. And this woman writes in asking for some advice. Her partner wants to do things that she is not comfortable with. And so she's in this situation of competing freedoms. My partner wants to do this thing. I don't want to do it. It's causing tension. What are we supposed to do? And I was like, great question. Let's see how they're going to answer this. And so the writer of uh, this uh, help column says, well, he can't tell you what to do. He can't impose that on you. That's not good. It's like, okay, all right, that's a good start. But she said at the same time, we can't tell him what he wants is not good either. And so here was the author's suggestion. Maybe he could find someone else who would let him do those things. That way he can be free in those desires and you don't have to participate in them. And then uh, another idea was just maybe let his mind run uh, wild, his imagination run wild with those things. And I was like, oh my goodness, really? That's the answer to these competing freedoms? That's what tolerance looks like? That sounds horrible, and I felt so sorry 
for the woman that, write, uh, that wrote asking that question. So that's the culture's response to what do we do with competing freedoms, but what is the church's response? What is scripture's response to how we are to deal with competing freedoms? Well, we first have to wrestle with, as Christians, what are our freedoms? What are we free to do? And then what do we do when we disagree with those things? And so this is part of our series on asking questions, the path to faith. And so I received a lot of questions on kind of Christian freedoms. Uh, Is it okay for Christians to do fill in the blank, A, B, C. And so I think often we have people that are rule followers and then we have rule breakers. I'm more of a rule breaker. My wife's more of a rule follower. And so rule followers just want to say, tell me what to do. Where's the line? Just give me a rule so I can follow the rule. Uh, But yet there are areas where scripture is gray where it doesn't give us a clear rule. And so when we ask these questions, hey, can Christians do this thing or that thing? Is this okay? Is that okay? Uh, Sometimes we don't have a rule to give us the answer. And so um, this week's sermon, we're going to deal with those Christian freedoms and how to interact with those questions. So let's go back to our passage today uh, from Galatians looking at the first verse, um, verse 1 in uh, Galatians 5. And so there it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So when we hear these words, slavery, it really takes us back um, Uh, into the first books of the Bible, into the books of Moses. And so in the Exodus story, which we were in just a couple weeks ago, we have God's people who are literally slaves. They're slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And they call out to God because they are suffering in their slavery. And so they call out for God to rescue them. And God does. He raises up a deliverer. He raises up Moses to bring his people out of the bondage of slavery. And that rescue that God uh, rescues his people from Egypt is this little taste of what's to come. And We see it in a fuller sense in the New Testament because our greatest slavery uh, is even bigger than what the Israelites experienced under Egypt. Our greatest slavery is being slave to sin and to death. Here's the thing. We want to be in charge. We want to rule our own lives. We want to be kings. We want to be gods of our lives. And unless God himself gives us a new birth, speaking life into us, 
we will never follow him. And so what Jesus does is he rescues us from that slavery, from a slavery to self-centeredness, to a slavery to sin and death. And he accomplishes this rescue on the cross. He takes our place. He dies for us so that we can have new life in him. And that is good news. And so Paul is telling us, you know what? Don't enslave yourself once again. After Christ has set you free, you need to live in that freedom. You no longer need to focus on what you need to do, but you need to rest in what Jesus has done. Rest in his rescue for you on the cross. Now, when we look at the different churches in the New Testament, we see how this concept of freedom gets misunderstood. So looking at a few different contexts, in Galatians, where our verse is today, um, the confusion there is you have these Jewish converts who think, you know what? To follow Jesus, to be a Christian, you have to obey all the old Jewish laws, ceremonies. Uh, you have to circumcise male children on the eighth day. You have to follow the dietary laws, right? So all these, these extras they thought you have to do those in addition to believing in Jesus. Now, in the Roman context, they did not like uh, Paul's teaching. And in fact, they accused Paul saying, you're just teaching people, you know what, do whatever you want to do because God will just forgive you. And Paul condemns that view very hard. He said, that is not what Christian freedom is at all. So we get these pendulum swingings uh, on both sides of it. In Corinthians, the context is, you know what? I just have the right to do whatever I want to do. So verse 13 of Galatians, Paul is addressing this, these things. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. And so what Paul is telling us is that freedom has a purpose. It is not freedom for freedom's sake. Liberation is not the end goal. We saw this in the Old Testament. God doesn't free his people from bondage to, Israel, uh, to Egypt and say, okay, I freed you. You're free to go, do whatever you want. No, he frees them for a purpose. He frees them for worship, that they would enter into right relationship with him. <coughs> he frees them so that they would be his representatives in the world, so that the rest of the world would come to know a right relationship with him. Their freedom had a purpose. In the Exodus, the freedom had a global mission. It was to bring blessing to the world 
and to bring others into fellowship with God. And so the purpose of freedom there was to bless and to bring. And Paul says the same thing. He says, your freedom in Christ has a purpose as well. Let's take a look at verse 14 of our Galatians 5 passage. So verse 14 tells us this. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so we get uh, connected to freedom. The freedom that he was just talking about in the verse before is that that freedom has a mission and a purpose and it's others-centered. It's a freedom to lose our self-centeredness, lose ourselves for the sake of others, to love others. That is the purpose and the mission of freedom. And we'll see that it has the same outworking as the Exodus, that it's to bless others and to bring others into fellowship with God. Now we get to verse 15 and we see the tension now. We see the tension that we started with. What do we do then when we have freedoms that uh, start to compete against one another? And you can see what's happening here in Galatians. Paul says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so we can see what's happening here is these freedoms as they're competing, as there's different ideas of what one is free to do, that it's starting to cause tension in the church. And they are biting at one another, devouring one another. And so these freedoms were actually causing division. So let's take a look at how Paul addresses this idea of competing freedoms. I want to give us a couple examples around the topic of food. So Romans 14, Paul is addressing an issue of food. And so there the issue was um, what to eat. Can you just eat whatever you want? And so the context is this. You have Jewish converts in Rome and you have Gentile converts in Rome. And so the Jewish converts think that they still need to adhere to the Jewish dietary laws when it comes to meat, right? And the Gentile converts think, we don't have to adhere to those Jewish laws. We can eat whatever we want to eat. And so these differences of opinion in the freedoms are actually very cultural. So from the Jewish perspective, imagine if you've grown up Jewish and you've spent your whole life around these dietary laws what does it feel like when someone says, hey, have a ham sandwich, enjoy? There's this, ooh, that just feels wrong. I've never eaten a ham sandwich before. I can't do that. So there's this guilt that starts to sink in. Now, from the Gentile perspective, they're thinking, 
I've eaten ham sandwiches my whole life. Why would I not eat one now? And so, um, again, these differences are culturally centered. And so Paul, what he does is he makes this distinction of the strong and the weak. And so in this example, the Jewish perspective was called the weak perspective. And so we could say they didn't understand God's grace. They didn't understand God's freedom. And so the weaker posture was to forbid and abstain. And so we see here that they wanted rules. They wanted boundaries to protect their conscience. And what it resulted in was a posture of being judgmental to those who didn't follow their rules. Now, if we look at the Gentile perspective in this situation, they were considered the strong. So if the Jewish was the weak percent, uh, uh, the weak perspective, the Gentile was the strong per, uh, perception. And so uh, them being strong would say, hey, you know what? Our theology is right. We've got this right. We get God's grace. We can eat whatever we want. And so Paul's acknowledging, yep, you are theologically correct. And I'm going to call you strong in your theology because you understand God's grace. All right, so there's one eating ex example from Romans 14. There's another eating example where this situation kind of flips and it's in 1 Corinthians 8. And so there, it's a slightly different issue. There, we have meat being sold in the markets and it is meat that has been dedicated to, uh, offered to other gods, other idols. Now, if we look at the Gentile cultural perspective in this, they have participated in those uh, offerings to other gods, that pagan worship. And so now as they've been converted to Christianity, and they think about eating that meat that's associated with their old way of life, ooh, their consciences are troubled, they're bothered. We, we can't eat that. You can't eat meat that's been offered to, to other gods, to, to pagan gods, that's been dedicated to idols. No, the answer is no, do not eat that meat. But the Jewish converts, they think, you know what, we can eat whatever meat we want. It doesn't matter if it's been dedicated to an idol or to another God. You know why? Because there are no other gods. The Jewish story is there is but one true God. And again, going back to the Exodus, we see that as God delivers his people out, he shuts down every other God and says, there's no sun God, there is no moon God, there is no God of the Nile, there is no God of fertility, there is one God and he is over all of it and he has demonstrated that in the plagues and in the Exodus. That is their story. And so when they see meat for sale in a market that's been offered to something that doesn't even exist, it doesn't bother their conscience one bit. They think, that's not a real God, I have no problem buying that meat. 
And so again, we see this cultural uh, difference at play with the freedom. And once again, Paul uh, speaks into these differences with these assessments of strong and weak. But here it's flipped. Here, this time, the Gentile perspective is seen as the weak one, seen as the one where they don't understand God's grace. The weaker posture was the one of abstaining and forbidding. The weaker posture was the one wanting these rules and boundaries to protect conscience. And again, what uh, the outworking was, was a posture of judgmentalism. You are wrong if you eat this meat. Now here, the Jewish perspective, again, it's flipped in this situation. Paul calls the stronger one. They're the ones that are theologically correct. They understand the freedom of God's grace. Now, I think a couple lessons from these contexts is one, that there is no superior culture. We see each of these cultures flip between weak and strong. And so for us, it helps us understand that each cultural perspective comes with weaknesses and with strengths. And so what that tells us then is that diversity is a necessity if we are to understand our strengths and weaknesses. And so I'm talking cultural diversity, I'm talking ethnic diversity, I'm talking political diversity, social diversity, economic diversity. When we have groups of people with all those different diversities, we are then in a position to step back and better understand our weaknesses in each of those areas and our strengths. Only in diversity can we better understand those things. And then unity in Christ is the thing that actually allows us to step back and assess those things. When Christ is the most important things in our lives, then we are in a better position to step back and evaluate everything else. And so we've got competing freedoms at play here. And so Paul needs to come in and kind of have the dad moment. He's going to break it up, right? And so each of the party's going to come to him. Well, look what he did. Look what he did, right? And so set it straight, right? Be the dad here, Paul. And so what uh, is Paul going to do? Well, in each of the contexts, he identifies the strong and the weak. He identifies one group as theologically correct and the other as not. And he labels each one as such, as strong and weak. What might you expect his counsel to be? Let's play it out, right? Here's, here's what I would think if I didn't read any further in these passages. That Paul's going to come in in Romans, and he's going to say, hey, you know what? Um, 
the Gentiles, uh, they have it right here. They, their theology is good. And so everybody else, you need to step in line, okay? Do what the Gentiles are, are doing here. They're right, you're wrong, straighten it out, right? Or if we go to the, uh, the context in First Corinthians, we'd say it the other way. You know what here, Gentiles, you got some bad theology. You know who's got it right? Our Jewish converts. You need to follow their lead. Step in line. You were wrong, they were right. That's what we'd expect, right? Send them straight, Paul. But what does Paul actually do? It's kind of surprising. Let's take a look at uh, each of those contexts. We'll start in Romans 14, verses 1 through 3. tells us this. Here's Paul's counsel. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Wow. Welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. That is amazing. So Paul tells them, hey, you know what? Don't sit here and judge one another over what they're eating. You're both wrong because you're making it about the wrong thing. And so Paul says, be welcoming to one another, not divisive. Because guess what? That is how God welcomed you. He welcomed you, not because you had it all together, not because you had all the right theology. He welcomed you even while you didn't. And so you need to do the same thing. You need to welcome each other, which means you need to have some humility here. Let's take a look at verse 14 in Romans chapter 14. Here he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Good theology. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Wow. Okay, so what Paul is saying here is if your theology is wrong, and actually you believe that it's wrong for you to eat it, and you eat it, then you are violating your conscience, and that is sin. So stronger party, if you keep insisting, hey, you know what? You guys need to eat. You need to get over it. And they eat while believing in their hearts that is wrong, they are sinning. You are causing them to sin. If you make them do something they believe is wrong, you are destroying them. Let's look at verse 17 here, the same chapter. Verse 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, you guys are missing the whole point. <clears throat> All right, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 8 in the second uh, narrative that we were speaking of. 
And he does the same thing here. Verses 7 through 9 tell us this. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The strong are theologically correct in their behavior. Yet, they are not acting in love toward the weak. And here's the profound truth in this, that we can destroy people with theological rightness and insistence. Does that mean that theology is bad and we should ignore it? Of course not. But when we are dogmatic in the way that we push on it and we don't welcome people in and we're not gentle and patient with them and we go about just our own rights, even theologically correct rights, that we can actually harm others in the process. That's what's going on here. What a lesson that is for us. Now, this is not tolerance, as the world understands. Because in worldly tolerance, you can't make any judgments of behavior or belief. If you say someone is wrong, that is being intolerant, as the world understands it. And so the secular tolerant person doesn't allow anyone to affect or hinder the way that they want to live at the same time. But what does Paul do? He calls it out. He gives an assessment. He says, this position is strong. This position is weak. And so he is making assessments. He is making judgments of each of those positions. And he gives, again, these uh, negative evaluation and positive evaluation, uh, calling one strong and the other weak, but calling both to accept and receive the other into deep fellowship, into deep community. He's calling for humility. He's calling for gentleness to bring people along, not by insisting on your freedoms. Okay, so what does that tell us? Again, just summarizing this chunk right here, we need diversity, cultural, ethnic, political, social, economic, to be able to understand our strengths and weaknesses in understanding the gospel itself. And that means we must not devour one another over these gray areas of freedoms or restrictions. And that there are times when our theological insistence, even when correct, can damage other people. 
And so we must be willing to hold our freedoms loosely for the sake of others. We've got to keep the gospel at the center of our identity and the center of our community and not fight over the secondary and tertiary opinions. So our goal is not secular tolerance. It is patient and welcoming gospel unity. Our freedom in Christ is a freedom to be others-centered. Now, our freedom, as it has throughout all of Scripture, has a mission. It has a goal. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. There it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Okay, so here is the goals of our Christian freedom. Number one, it is God's glory. That has to be the first criteria for our freedom. Whether we're talking about food or anything else, God's glory should be our first concern. He is the one who freed us. And we want the world around us to marvel in how good he is. And so that means this, that means that we have to be mindful of everyone around us. We need to be mindful of how all eyes will perceive what we do in our freedom. And so that means we can't um, seek our own advantage in the name of freedom. We've got to think about how freedom, our freedom, will affect everyone around us. And we're to think of others first. Why? So that they may be saved. So that they would experience the same freedom that we have experienced. And so use your freedom to bring others to that same freedom. Our freedom has a mission. It has a purpose, just as it always has for God's Okay, so let's get down to the nitty-gritty, to the application of it here. What's a big question right now with Christian freedom? When are we going to get to meet? When do we get to stop doing all this Zoom stuff and actually meet in person and worship face-to-face? Okay? So... It means we can't just start with, um, I have rights. I have freedoms and I'm going to use it to my advantage. That cannot be our starting place. In doing that, it's conceivable that we could cause others to sin even in that. If we demand to that right, which may be theologically correct, but if someone else feels, ooh, I can't in good conscience meet right now or permit as a leader 
people to meet when I think that harm is going to be done and we demand our rights, we may be causing others to sin. We need to consider the watching unbeliever. How might insisting on my freedom affect their view of God? And how might that affect their move toward salvation? Right? So these are the things that we have to consider when we're considering our freedoms, not just our right, not just our advantage, but how is it impacting others? How is that freedom on mission and with purpose? We can apply the same questions to wearing masks, to having people in our homes. Okay, here's another little bit more broad one. The arts, which so many of us are a part of. Let's just take actors, right? What am I free to do on camera? What am I free to do on stage? Just give me the rules, right? Well, guess what? This is gray, it's a gray area. And so we need to wrestle through these questions. Am I just seeking my own advantage with whatever freedoms I pursue here? How might these freedoms of what I decide to do on camera or on a stage affect others around me? How might my freedom be used on mission for God's kingdom, for God's glory? And so there are not black and white answers here. And in fact, different people may come to different conclusions based on how they answer those questions. How about with regard to entertainment? It's another big question for people. As a Christian, what can I watch? What can I listen to? Uh, one of my favorite stories is a, a story of one of my professors in seminary. And uh, the class I was taking was film and theology. And this professor, his name's Dennis Hack. And he was in his 70s at the time, and he would use movies as a vehicle um, for conversation with unbelievers. And so he would go to the coffee shop and ask people working there, what are you watching? What are you seeing right now? And he tells a story about one day he went in and he asked that question and everybody answers in unison, knocked up. And so he went home and he said to his wife, Margie, he says, guess what? We're going to see knocked up. Now, he said, that is not my kind of movie at all. It's not my kind of humor. But he said, there is something in that movie that is connecting with all these people in my community in this coffee shop. And so I'm going to watch that movie on mission. I'm going to watch that movie so that I have this vehicle to engage them about topics that are touching them deeply. And so he was watching this movie, not for his own advantage, his own pleasure. He actually didn't even like it. He was watching it to be on mission. Food, drink, how you spend your money. Do we just make hard rules on these things? No, that's actually what the Pharisees did. We have freedom. We have to live in 
the gray sometimes. But when we do, we need to exercise godly judgment on how we are to use those freedoms. And lastly, I want to say this, that um, Proverbs, the book of wisdom, gives us another great uh, counsel on this. Proverbs 11, verse 14, where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So it means this, guess what? If you're a Christian, you're part of a church. You're part of a people. And so God has surrounded you with counsel to work through these things. We don't have to figure out our freedoms in isolation. We figure them out together, asking these questions of one another. Okay, so I wanna remind us just to close today of this. We have been set free in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin and death. We are no longer ruled by sin, by self-centeredness. And death no longer has the final word for us. And so we can rest in what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf for our acceptance before God. Now, there are going to be times when we disagree on our Christian freedoms. And so our culture, our ethnicity, our social status, economic status is going to come with strengths and weaknesses. And so we wanna pursue diversity in each of these areas to help us to be able to see with different eyes. When we do disagree on our liberties, we must not insist on rightness and cause division and devour one another. We must be willing to be patient and bearing with one another and seek unity in Christ above all things. Our freedom and liberation is not the end goal. Our freedom has a purpose. It has a mission. It is for God's glory and his kingdom. And so in discerning what to do when we're in the gray, those areas where God's word does not address a specific situation, we have this grid to think through. Is it just for my advantage? Does this help bring glory to God? How does this affect others around me? How might this freedom be used to bring others to salvation? And have I sought counsel? Have I worked through this with other Christians? This is what God gives us in these tensions. And he gives us the gospel again, the good news of what his son has done on our behalf so that we can live in this freedom. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word today. Thank you for the freedom that you give us with the gospel. I pray that you would help us to see our cultural, our ethnic, our social, economic, political weaknesses and strengths by uh, the diversity of those who differ from us. Lord, I pray that you would help us live as a community, seeking the wisdom as a community as we work through these, these questions of Christian freedom. 
So Lord, help us to, to live this out with a purpose, with a mission. And that is for your glory, for your kingdom, to bring others to salvation. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.